It's Bible history time today. We've got all your favorite chapters, Deuteronomy 24, 2 Kings 22. They'll be easy to find. They're probably dog-eared in your Bibles already. All that and more today on The Backdrop. Yes, this is The Backdrop. I'm Curtis, as you probably know by now. And if not, and this is the first time you've listened to one of our podcasts, well, I can only imagine the strange journey that got you here, of all places. But stick around. We're diving deep into Jeremiah chapter 3 today and looking at some of the ways that other parts of the Bible inform the things that we find there. There are four main things I want to look at today that are somewhat distinct, but all woven together in this chapter. The main theme of this chapter, which Meredith explored in her sermon this week, and so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on here, is repentance, turning, turning back, returning. And if you look for it in this chapter, it's really striking the sheer number of times those words show up. And the stuff we're going to be talking about today all connect in one way or another with that main theme. We're going to start where Jeremiah starts this chapter, with a reference to an obscure law from the book of Deuteronomy. Jeremiah asks in verse 1, If someone dismisses his wife, she goes from him, and she comes to belong to another man, can he return to her again? In other words, if a man divorces his wife, remember this was a one-way street in the ancient world, the man divorces his wife, and she gets remarried and then divorces again, can she get remarried to the original husband? Jeremiah is referring to, as I said in the intro, Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and beds her, it shall be, if she does not find favor in his eyes because he finds in her some shamefully exposed thing, and he writes her a document of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house, and she goes out from his house and goes and becomes another man's, and the second man hates her and writes her a document of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house, or the second man who took her to him as a wife dies, her first husband who sent her away shall not be able to come back and take her to be his wife after she has been defiled, for it is an abhorrence before Yahweh, and you shall bring this offense upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you as your estate. Now, first of all, that is quite the run-on sentence. Second, the naked and to our eyes distasteful sexism of this law shouldn't obscure the fact that this is in fact probably a law that was intended to protect women within the patriarchal society in which they existed. They couldn't just be passed back and forth at the whims of the men in their lives. We've talked before about how God, for whatever reason, seems to work within a culture or society, even when aspects of that culture are, at least we would say, clearly opposed to God's ideal for humanity. This is, not coincidentally, the same law that Jesus is confronted with by the Pharisees at one point, when they say, Moses said that we could write a woman a certificate of divorce and send her away. What do you say about that? And Jesus says, yes, Moses did say that because of your hardness of heart, that God gave you that law, but it's not the way God wanted things from the beginning. God designed it for two people to become one flesh in a marriage and not be divorced. But that is not the point Jeremiah is trying to make. Jeremiah is picking up on his previous metaphor of Israel as unfaithful wife and saying, What, you want to return to Yahweh, your first husband, now? Your own law says that's impossible. You can't come back. It would be, in the words of Deuteronomy, an abhorrence. And at first, this chapter seems to be building to that conclusion. No, Judah, you can't come back. 
it's too late. In verse 8, God refers to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And just a quick tangent, there are times when the word Israel refers to the whole people of God in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament. But there are other times, like in this chapter, when Israel refers to the northern kingdom that split off from the southern kingdom of Judah after the death of Solomon. You kind of just need to pay attention to the context to know which is being said in any given chapter. But in any event, in verse 8, God refers to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC by the Assyrians, saying that when they went off into exile, it was as if God had given them their certificate of divorce as she was sent off into exile in Assyria. And remember that people reading this book have already been sent off into exile themselves, just in Babylon. And so the inescapable conclusion of these verses is that they, too, have been given their certificate of divorce and sent away by Yahweh. And the law makes itself abundantly clear. That's the end of the story. It would be an abhorrent offense for God to take them back again. And surely God is not going to commit an abhorrent offense against God's own law, right? Verse 12, go proclaim these words to the north. Say, return, Israel who turned, Yahweh's words. I won't make my face fall against you because I'm committed, Yahweh's words. I don't hold on to things forever. The words are to the northern exiles, Israel, but they are clearly meant to speak to the Judean exiles reading this book in Babylon, who are in the exact same situation. God says, yes, I will break my own law in the interest of grace, because I'm committed. Which brings us back to Jesus, doesn't it? Who says, actually, God's intention for marriage was that it would be a commitment forever. Why? For some prudish moral reasons or because of patriarchal ideas about ownership of women? No, marriage is intended to be a commitment forever, no matter what, because God's relationship to God's people is a commitment forever, no matter what. And the marriage relationship between two people can be an example to the world around those two people of what God is like. That God's grace and commitment towards us is like the grace and commitment of healthy spouses to one another. Or maybe it's better to say it is the perfected version of the commitment and grace of two spouses towards one another. God has every right to send Israel away forever. But God chooses not to exercise that right in the interest of grace. I think our marriages, and really all our relationships, would be a whole lot better if we did the same thing more often, if we chose not to exercise our rights in the interest of grace. I think our society would be far better if Americans chose to not put such an emphasis on having certain rights and instead chose to build a better, more gracious society instead, but that's a topic for another day. For now, let's move on to the second topic I wanted to hit on here in the backdrop. Starting in verse 6, Jeremiah spends the next chunk of verses talking about Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern. Israel had been destroyed and exiled by Assyria in 722 BC, roughly 100 to 150 years before the words of Jeremiah here. Judah and Jerusalem itself had been spared by the Assyrians at that time. And the people remembered the way that Yahweh had come to their defense. And it was natural then 
for those people to say, well, that's because we were better than Israel. Isn't it obvious? God saved us and not them. And so surely God will save us now too. And Jeremiah here turns it on its head. Yes, Israel turned away from God and the result was their exile, their divorce. But now you're headed the same direction. In fact, the readers of this book would know they already headed that direction. And there's one key difference between you and Israel. You had their example. You already saw what would happen if you didn't turn back to Yahweh, and you kept going anyway. So no, Israel is not worse than you, Judah. It's the other way around. You've done the same things as them, even though you had more warning. You are even dumber than they are. Which does require us today to ask the same question. What does that say about us and the church? We have the benefit of Israel's example and Judah's example and any number of other examples from the pages of scripture. So when we turn away from God and trust in political ideology or money or whatever else instead of God, we don't come out looking too good. But at the same time, we can take comfort in the words of this passage, just like the exiles in Babylon could. If God is willing to take Israel back, then God is willing to take us back as well. No matter how many times we have turned away from God and chased after other sources of protection and provision. Now, third thing for today, I wanted to drill down on what exactly turning back or returning to Yahweh means. Verse 13 says, only acknowledge your waywardness that you have rebelled against Yahweh your God and scattered your journeys to strangers. And then a little later, and I'll take you back which kind of makes it sound like praying the sinner's prayer or something. I've sinned, but now I believe in you. It sounds like just saying, I've acknowledged this thing, said the right words, and now I'm done. End of story. But that's missing something important about what it means to acknowledge your waywardness, as Jeremiah puts it. In verse 10, God refers to a contemporary event that is recorded in 2 Kings. And it's talked about in a far more favorable light in 2 Kings than it is here in Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3.10 says, But even in all this, her sister, Israel's sister, faith-breaking Judah, didn't return to me with her whole spirit, but rather with falsehood. Judah acknowledged her waywardness, in some sense, but not the sense that God meant. She returned in falsehood, not completely. And it is all or nothing. This section of Jeremiah took place, as verse 6 tells us, in the days of Josiah. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, we get the story of Josiah becoming king at 8 years old, and then 10 years later, when Josiah is 18, the priest Hilkiah finds a scroll in the temple, buried behind something or under something or something like that. Scholars believe this scroll either was the book of Deuteronomy or was some other section of the Torah which then inspired the editing and comp compilation of the book of Deuteronomy. But in any event, a scribe named Shaphan comes to the king and says, in 2 Kings 22.10, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it to the king, and it happened when the king heard the words of the book of teaching that he tore his garments. And the king charged Hilkiah the priest and Ahikan, son of Shaphan, and Akbor, son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh on my behalf, and on behalf of the people, and on behalf of all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, 
For great is Yahweh's wrath that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not heeded the words of this book, to do all that is written in it. And then chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Kings record Josiah embarking on a massive overhaul of religious practice in Judah. He has the words of the Torah read in front of all the people, and they repent of their waywardness, and they smash the altars to idols, and in some they seem to do all the very things that Jeremiah has said they need to do. But 2 Kings 23:26 says it wasn't enough. Yet Yahweh did not turn back from his great smoldering wrath his wrath that was kindled against Judah for all the vexations with which Manasseh, who was the previous king, had vexed him. Second king's perspective is Josiah did what he was supposed to do, but it wasn't enough. But as we saw, Jeremiah has a slightly, very different perspective. I've mentioned before that it's curious that Josiah's reforms, which were happening at exactly the time that Jeremiah was active, don't get much mention in Jeremiah, even though they would seem to be exactly what Jeremiah would have wanted to happen. But chapter 3, verse 10, which we read just a minute ago, gives us a clue, I think, as to why. Again, it says, But even in all this, her sister, faith-breaking Judah, didn't return to me with her whole spirit, but rather with falsehood. Jeremiah sees the reforms, but doesn't see people actually returning. He sees them coming back and saying, oh, I've changed, baby. It won't happen again. I promise. You can trust me. I'm a new man. I'm all yours now. Really, I've changed. From Jeremiah's perspective, Josiah's reforms may have been well-intentioned, but they didn't result in actual repentance. They resulted in lip service repentance. To Jeremiah, acknowledge your waywardness does not mean say the right words. It means reorient your life. Walk down this path instead of that one. Put your trust here instead of there. And that's the key question for the whole book of Jeremiah, actually. Where do you put your trust? Because where you put your trust for protection and provision for the good life, that is going to determine how you then live. And that's just as much true for us today as it was for Israel then. So yes, it's as simple as acknowledging your waywardness and God will take you back. But if you were to truly acknowledge the wayward part of your waywardness, your whole life would change because you would be trusting God instead of idols for your security. Because if the rest of your life doesn't change, then you haven't actually acknowledged the wayward part. You're still living as if God can't be trusted. And so you may have said that you trust God, but if your actions show you're continuing to trust something else, then it's just words. It's returning in falsehood, to use Jeremiah's word. Okay, and now the last thing I wanted to highlight here from chapter 3, starting in verse 14, God turns to the future, to the hope and restoration that will surely come for the people who do return. And there are a couple interesting features in what exactly Jeremiah says. First, it says, return, I'll take you, one from a city and two from a family. Now, this is in marked contrast to how membership in God's people was thought of in those days. Israel, like the nations around it, was a clan or tribe-based people. You even see remnants of this in the New Testament, where it sometimes says that so-and-so and their whole family were baptized. To the people of Israel, they were a part of God's family because they were the people of Israel. 
their genetic line back to Abraham meant that they had inherited the promises made to Abraham. But this verse points to an alternative future. That one from a town and two from a family, which incidentally is two ways of saying the same thing in a culture where the town you lived in was basically entirely populated by the extended family you were a part of. But this is a picture of individuals being accepted back by God, not whole clans or even whole nuclear families. Now, I think this sort of verse is sometimes read as being individualistic. What matters is my relationship with God. I turn back to God. God accepts me. That's what matters. But what we shouldn't lose sight of here is that what is being described is a little different than that. Yes, individuals are returning to God, but not to remain individuals. What's in view here is a renewed people, a new family. God will take these stragglers and will form a new family out of them. This is, of course, what the New Testament talks about that God's family is being redefined around the person of Jesus, the good shepherd, like verse 15 of Jeremiah 3 promises. But this new family is being defined around Jesus instead of genetics. But it is still a family, and ultimately about the family, and the part that the family of God is intended to play in God's plan for the world. And we get to that in verse 16 of Jeremiah 3. There's what at first glance is a little bit of a strange reference that in this ideal future, people will no longer say, Yahweh's covenant chest. It won't come to mind. They won't be mindful of it or pay attention. It won't be made again. And this is referring to the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that Israel carried around with the tabernacle, and then which finally was placed in the temple, in the center of the temple, after Solomon built the temple. The Ark was one of Israel's most prized possessions. So why are people not going to mention it or think about it anymore in the future restoration of God's people? To answer that, we need to remember what the Ark or covenant chest represented. It was built to represent God's throne, the place where God lived and sat in a metaphorical sense. The Ark was the symbol that guaranteed God's presence with God's people. But the temple had been destroyed, and the ark presumably was taken by the Babylonians and melted down or put into a trophy case from conquered peoples or something like that. So the symbol of God's presence is gone. And to some people, at least, that means God is as well. But Jeremiah says, no, God's presence is not gone. And there will come a day when you won't even think about the ark anymore. You won't lament its absence because God's presence will be tangible and real enough that you won't need the symbol anymore. Which again is what the New Testament describes happening in and through Jesus, who gives us the Holy Spirit as a permanent personal expression of God's presence. And that is the connection with the following verse, verse 17. Jerusalem will be God's throne. Kind of like the image in the book of Revelation. God's presence will be tangibly felt throughout the city. And not only that, the nations will come and gather. This is a drum that I beat relentlessly because it is so important to understanding the Bible and the Old Testament in particular. This is the dream that God has for God's people all through history, that God would be able to be present with them tangibly, that they would trust God and God alone to give them life, and that they would, in so doing, 
attract the nations to be a part of a renewed family of God that includes all people. And Jeremiah is saying, despite appearances, that day is still coming. And in fact, this disaster that has happened to us is a part of how we will be pushed forward into that new day. And all you have to do to be a part of it is to return to Yahweh, who will go as far as breaking God's own law to bring you back. And if that's not a good place to end, I don't know what is. So I hope you found this deep dive into Jeremiah 3 as interesting as I did. If you're using this podcast as part of your You and a Few, we will post questions in the show notes of this episode on the website so you can go there and get them. And we'd love to see you on Zoom this weekend. And a link to that is also on our website, pomonavalleychurch.org. But until then, stay safe and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.